Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast. Hello, thank you so much for joining us. This is the Africa Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwe. Now, we're still in Zambia, and today we are talking about one of Africa's great wetlands, the Barotse floodplain. It is located on the upper Zambezi, western province of Zambia. And I'm joined by Dr. Machaya from the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Zambia. Thank you so much, Dr. Machaya. Please introduce yourself. My name is Amachaya Chomba. I'm the Upper Zambezi Landscape Manager. So the Upper Zambezi program uh, covers the provinces of Western Province as well as Northwestern Province. Uh, in terms of a catchment or the ideological catchment for the program, we focus on three particular areas. That's the Kabompo catchment, the Liwa Plain National Park, as well as the Barotse floodplain. So these for us constitute what we're calling the Upper Zambezi landscape. Thank you so much. Now, these floodplains are said to be most important in Africa. Why? I think I'll start maybe looking at it in terms of three aspects. At a national level, the Barossa floodplain is the second largest wetland system in Zambia. Second only to the Bangoli wetlands in the northern part of Zambia. So in terms of its ecological significance and the spatial extent of it, for the nation, it is really important. In terms of maybe yeah, the ecological values, the Barotse floodplain obviously has got high biodiversity values, whether it be, for example, the high flora or the bird species that it hosts. We have uh, critical water birds, for example, like the wattled crane, the open billstocks, the Af- African schemer. We've also got large variety of eagles. So in terms of the avifauna of the Barotse floodplain, it's got over 339 bird species. So because of that, really, it's a hotspot for biodiversity. Uh, but also, if you also look at it in terms of the fish species, currently, the time we are doing a biodiversity assessment, we found that currently there are over 129 fish species alone. And we think that there could be still more that are not yet documented. So in terms of the fisheries biodiversity, also it is also a massive area in terms of uh, biodiversity. So in terms of uh, water values, uh, the Barotse floodplain, I think there's an interesting metaphor for the Barotse floodplain. It's almost uh, like a a sponge and almost like a a basin type kind of formation, whereby you find that the low land areas are almost like these these lower part of my of, of my palms and then you've got then the margins of the Barotse floodplain which then are surrounded by this upper forested area and because of that is it extends over 270 in length and over 30k in width obviously when it inundates or in terms of flooding it can reach as high as 550,000 hectares so it's a massive system that is almost breathing and contracting. You find that when the water comes, it sort of swells and then comes up. So it's in a way, it almost acts like the lungs of the Barotse Basin. And then also another interesting point, which I would also like to state is that in terms of where the Barotse floodplain sits, it sits right in the middle of two agroecological regions, which are characterized by difference in precipitation, in temperature, but also in humidity. So you find that the Barotse floodplain then sits in what's called Acro Ecoregion 2B. 
and then upwards of the Barossa floodplains where you've got the high rainfall areas and then below it you've really got areas of low rainfall areas and because of that you can almost see like a transition between very high rainfall areas and also very low rainfall areas and in that way it then sort of acts like a sponge that slowly releases water from these headwaters to the regions that don't necessarily receive a lot of uh, rainfall and because of that then it plays this function of water security not only for the region the communities but also downstream communities for the region and and in terms of energy production we all know that it then also serves as this ecological infrastructure that supplies areas like the Kariba Dam to produce energy so in terms of the services that we receive from the Barotse, you can look at it in terms of the ecosystem services, the provisioning services, the cultural services, but also the water supply services. And it's a massive productive system. How many other tributaries apart from the Zambezi do we get yeah. draining into this? Yeah, maybe I'll start with the surface water tributaries because obviously the groundwater tributaries is another factor. Uh, in terms of the tributaries, the main uh, tributaries include, for example, the Kabompo which for us as a program, the Upper Zambezi, we see it also as a very important tributary because that's the only tributary that flows into the Zambezi that's entirely located within Zambia. So from a national water security perspective, it's in our interest to secure the Kabompo because we don't know what's going to happen in, other, in the other tributaries. So the Kabompo is one of them. Of course, the other tributaries that start off in the Angolan highlands, uh, rivers like the Lungwewungu, the Luanginga and Luambimba, all of these then sort of feed in into the Zambezi just north of the Barossa floodplain and then obviously within the floodplain itself you could then sort of many more tributaries that are feeding in before obviously it starts to flow out so if you look at it in terms of water sources of the Barossa we've got the main tributaries who contribute and in terms of the volume of water eh, the, the average volumes of water is almost 872 cubic meters per second so that's huge compared to other uh, for example countries even in southern africa but even in europe they don't get this much of water coming into a system uh, and then was obviously you also have then the the, the precipitation that comes in uh, the precipitation ranges between 800 to 1000 millimeters per annum that are flowing into the system and then obviously we then got the groundwater that also feeding in so you've got the surface water, groundwater, but also the precipitation that are feeding in into the system. So one of the things about the wetlands is its ability to hold water. Mm. I want to talk about it in relation to groundwater recharges. How important is the wetland? The Barossa floodplain is what's now called the groundwater dependent ecosystem. And the ground dependent ecosystem is really an ecosystem whereby the ecosystems or the water levels are highly dependent on the groundwater and surface water interaction. And the Barossa floodplain, I think, has been really established now as a groundwater dependent ecosystem. And I think this is largely because of a number of things, largely because maybe say of the geomorphology of the area in terms of the soil profile. You find that the, the soil type here is different, it's dominated by huge Kalahari Sansa that extend all the way up to about even um, 300 meters are down in terms of these loose sandy soils that obviously uh, in terms of precipitation of water to the ground is very prone but then at the bottom after this sort of Kalahari sand you've got this sort of balsat rock that sort of crops up all at the Sioma Falls and that, that's where you find that Sioma Falls then becomes that place where then it dips because all the way from Lukul you've got this underlining very hard substructure 
but then on top of it you've got then this sort of Ulusa Kalahari Sands and then at the bottom then it sort of outcrops at the Sioma Falls so because of that it's then prone a lot to for example the surface water as well as groundwater that interaction is very prominent what we found out and I think what we're learning uh, currently is that because of this groundwater surface water interaction you find that the system is either losing or gaining in terms of water by losing that means that either the system is feeding in to the to the surrounding areas or it is gaining so what we found that in Lukulu in the upper reaches of uh, Lukulu to Mongo the Barossa floods plain is actually gaining water from other surrounding groundwater aquifers whether it be maybe from the tributaries in the in like Kabompo, Lungebongo, even the groundwater is slowly uh, sort of gaining water. You find from Lukulu all the way up to areas, for example, like Senanga, then the groundwater then is sort of losing. It's then feeding into nearby surrounding areas. And I think that is really important in trying to understand how these various sinks and sources of water are linked. By water sinks, remember I mentioned the surface water and precipitation, as well as, for example, groundwater reaches. So these are all supplying and providing that water. But you've also got also uh, losses huh, where the, the system is also losing, for example, in our transportation. And we find, for example, that the Barossa floodplain loses approximately 1,500 millimeters of water per annum in terms of its uh, losses of water. So in terms of understanding how these sinks as well as these sources are interacting and these losses and how they affect the available water that we have in the system and consequently how much water then is supplied to areas like the Kariba is really important. We still don't know fully how these interactions are. But what we do, do know that systems like the Barote, we still need to do more research in terms of groundwater monitoring. That's we've, we have a good network of surface water monitoring but groundwater monitoring for the Barossa floodplain and indeed the upper Zambezi catchment, we still don't know much about. And it's really important for us to really understand both the surface water and groundwater uh, recharge. Even, for example, for things like, for example, water supply. For example, uh, there's this new project uh, that has been done by uh, the, the Western Water Supply Corporation. They have been trying to supply uh, urban areas like Mongu by, for example, abstracting from the Zambezi and then trying to increase as water supply to the communities but what we also know that they're also doing is that they're also tapping in from the aquifers and trying to complement both the surface water as well as the groundwater but without understanding the full knowledge of how the groundwater recharged you find that we still don't know how much stock of groundwater is there so in conclusion i think it's really important that we also do more groundwater monitoring absolutely and one of the things i just want to take you back and actually probably understand because then we have the kabombo and we have this particular yeah. floodplain to what extent is this relied upon by zambia mm. nationally yeah i would say that yeah it's a very interesting question and obviously maybe just to also retract we can say that the zambezi basin itself is i think the largest catchment or basin in zambia out of the seven catchments and obviously within this basin and within, for example, in the Barossa floodplain, you've got key sectors, for example, like fisheries that where, for example, local communities then do depend on fisheries for food security, but also for nutritional diets. We did a study trying to estimate the economic valuation of fisheries really at the landing site. And when I say at the landing site, this is where, for example, communities harvest the fish and they sell. Now, you, as you know, the, the value chain of fisheries 
can extend beyond, for example, them catching the fish and selling it to along the processing packaging. So the value then sort of increases. At the landing site, we estimated a value of about 4.4 million US dollars for the Barossa flat plain. Now, if you include other sectors, for example, like, like livestock, if you include other sectors, for example, like the water services that it provides for energy generations, you find that the total economic value of the Barossa flat plain almost triples. And it comparatively with other sectors, you find that it actually competes very well with other sectors, like, for example, even mining, when you quantify all of these sectors like fisheries, livestock, water provisioning, as well as forestry sectors. Mm. So in terms of our dependence on the system, it's something that I think as a country, we haven't yet really started to quantify it. But of course, I know WWF has been involved in processes like the uh, natural capital accounting system that aims at really understanding our natural capital accounts and how it contributes to our economy. And I think this is a process of actually realizing the full potential of our ecosystem for the country. Hmm. Yeah. And for that to realize that particular potential, do you see like they are increased? Because one of the key things I've actually seen is the aspect of research. Mm -hmm. We tend to do research basically driven by outside factors, mm. not necessarily like a country says, say for example, Zambia, we have all these resources, yeah. but our national plan in terms of by 2030 or by 2050, this is where we want to go. Yeah. And in terms of food security and in all sectors and mining and stuff like that. Mm. But we have this floodplain that is very key to the ecosystem, mm. but we do not tend to really do research in terms yeah. of concentrated research geared towards our development yeah. and how do we develop how do we sustainably reach our development goals while making yeah. sure that we conserve have you seen government driven research mm. not private sector and not from outside research organizations for example mm. zambian government saying we are allocating this amount of fund to study the water bodies that we have the resources yeah. that we have yeah i think one of the interesting thing about these seven catchments which i mentioned is that there's a basic catchment obviously for a very long time has remained relatively pristine in terms of uh, how much infrastructure development comes in uh, how much for example issues to do with overfishing so it's really pristine in terms of our human footprint on the ecosystem but increasingly there is this new interest now whether it be for example mining or whether it be for example damming or whether it be for example in terms of trying to harness uh, the wetlands in terms of uh, in expanding the agriculture but i think what has lagged behind as you said is really uh, the research angle to it in terms of understanding for example what is the impact if we're going to dam several places for example on the zambezi what's the impact for example on these ecological uh, values that we're talking about so not much i think uh, has really been invested from a country perspective if you look at for example our national budget and how much we allocate to that is very minimal. I think even less than 10% in terms of how much we invest in research. But I think the, obviously the scenario is changing. Huh? For example, partners like, for example, University of Zambia, uh, the Coabelch University. Uh, you've also got other think tanks uh, that are coming in and expressing interest in knowing. And I think as a program, as WWF, what we've been trying to do really is also invest a lot in this research. So a large component of the program huh, is invested in research around environmental flows. How much water does the environment need before we can actually alter fundamental functioning of the system? We've also been trying to do research around issues of flooding versus wildlife movements. We've got partners, for example, like the Zambian Carnival Program. We're trying to understand, for example, if the Lua Plain is flooding, 
how do wildlife move in response to that uh, hydrological dynamics issues of fire how do they affect for example wildlife movements we've also been doing research for example on uh, on fisheries and so far we've done a four-year database in trying to understand fisheries dynamics in terms of how much people are selling the fish uh, what are types of fish that are catching and is a fish going down or, or up so you're right you can't manage what you don't know and i think uh, i think both from a program and national perspective it's important that research meets the management needs of these partners like wama like department of fisheries they need to know so we are there then to provide a bridge eh? in terms of research informing management needs let's talk about the threats mm. you mentioned the, the pristineness of this particular floodplain which was there until now we found ourselves in a situation where now this is yeah talk to me about that yeah i mean i've been pleased now to, to work in this unique landscape for now close to five years and i think what you notice is that the number of threats that we've seen on the barossa flooding but also entirely on the on the upper zambezi landscape one of them i think has been large-scale infrastructure projects uh whether it be for example in the mining sector we now know, particularly, for example, in the headwaters of the Kabompo, which is now being coined as a new copper belt because of the increase in mining exploration as well as mining. Most recently, in last year, where we heard, for example, a new commitment by First Quantum Mining and trying to invest more money, a total of 1.3 billion US dollars in, uh, in trying to upscale the mining efforts around the Northwest province there. So obviously that has got the potential to affect key recharge areas and forest areas that, for example, act as supply areas for, for surface water as well as groundwater. Obviously associated with mining comes obviously the push for energy. You know, you can't do mining without energy, so you need more energy. And because of that, then there's this new push now for more places where you can produce hydropower dam and so forth. So it's sort of a coupled demand between infrastructure, but also the push for energy. And with this energy comes in, you want to then dam several areas. There are a number of sites that have been uh, proposed for damming. One of them is just uh, not far away from where we are. It's in, along the Sioma Falls. Uh, there's a proposed dam there. Obviously, an environmental impact assessment was done. But I think from a WWS perspective, we would want to really understand how the diversion of water towards the, you know, the turbines affect um, uh, some ecological processes, whether it be, for example, the flooding, uh, fisheries, but also, also the cultural use of that area. So obviously, large-scale infrastructure is one of them. Uh, the other threats is also around, uh, I think, uh, overutilization of natural resources. Uh, obviously, as a country, we've grown in population. Ten years ago, I think our population was estimated at uh, 17. We're now slowly above 20, 20 million. Huh? So that means that uh, our population is increasing. And with that increase in population comes also increase in, um, in utilization, whether it be for fisheries or, for example, on forests and so forth. So I think that is also one thing you find, obviously, that communities now are overfishing in certain areas, trying to secure that food security. So that is, I think, one of the key threats in terms of overutilization. Another um, key threat is that of certain um, uh, invasive species that have, that have now invaded the system. And if you think about invasive species, like, for example, the Mimosa pigra. The Mimosa pigra is something that 10 years ago on the Barossa floodplain, it was, it was not seen. Uh, but over time, over the last uh, five to 10 years, we've seen that there's been uh, this uh, increase in this mimosa pigra. 
and largely, largely because of our infrastructure projects like the Mongo Tapo Bridge that has caused some areas to be prone or favorable for colonization of Mimosa pigra. The other invasive species is one that's called the Australian crayfish. It's a fish type of crayfish that we suspect was imported in Zambia, but also then within the nation then brought in uh, to, to the Barotse and it's now also then increasing. One of the key drivers for that, uh, Sophie, has been the hydrological dynamics in terms of the flooding patterns, then providing this driving force for this mimosa pigra as well as Australian crayfish to actually spread. And we're doing some research and trying to understand the spread. But we suspect that in a year, the, the Australian crayfish spread at the rate of 41K per year. Yeah? If you look at it in terms of over 10 years, that is something that will, that will increase. So we're doing some research with the Rhodes University as well as the Southern African Institute of Biodiversity. The other one, I think, has been around um, agricultural expansion. Agricultural expansion is one thing that I think is also increasing. There's new interest in rice cultivation, new interest, for example, in maize cultivation. So you find that the wetland system now is seen as a place where you can move in and expand your, you know, your rice uh, and also maize field. At a nation, I think we estimated that 13% um, of wetland system was lost. Conversion of wetlands to agriculture is one of the main threats. I think the other key threat of us that we're seeing is that also of poaching. Yeah? Uh, you find places like, for example, the, the Lua Plain National Park, there's new interest now in trying to demand, obviously, from urban areas like Lusaka, as well as other urban areas, are pushing uh, for, uh, for this poaching. Yeah. And it's pushing of what particular kind of wildlife? Some of them would include the, uh, the water beast, would include the antelopes, it also includes a uh, snaring of, of cheetahs as well as uh, of lion population. Although in Newark we have a very small lion population, but there's increase in this snaring. And when you snare, it's indiscriminate, huh? whatever you catch in the snare uh, and you sell. Yeah, so that's I think one of the things that we're also trying to face. Lastly, another threat that I think we've also seen, uh, Sophie, is that of uh, illegal forest logging driven by international demand for commercial species like the rosewood, the Zambezi tick. And so there's this new emerging market that has come up and you find that there is rampant illegal logging, uh, particularly, for example, in Western province, which has got species like the rosewood, uh, the Zambezi tick as well, as well as in the headwaters. So you find that this is also then reducing our forest stocks. And you find that the Barossa floodplain, remember, as I said, that coupled loop between the forest and upland, Whatever happens in the upland definitely affects what happens in the in the lowland. Mm. I want to take you back a little bit to the Australian crayfish and the mimosa pigra. How mm. much are they a threat? So uh, it's something that I think we're yet to fully understand in terms of the actual impact. And uh, through a PhD student who's actually doing research, uh, I think there are three levels of impact of the crayfish. We've seen it from other systems like Kafue whereby the, the, the crayfish has now totally uh, expanded and it's established itself. In the Barotse, it's still, I think there are a few pockets of hotspots and it's slowly increasing. But the emerging finding that we're getting from the research that we're doing, for example, with Rhodes University and SIAB, is one, it's its impact on the juvenile fish species. Yeah, one, uh, when the native fish lay their eggs, it goes there to obviously feed on the eggs, but then also feeds on the juveniles. 
So you find that the ability for uh, the fish to repopulate and respawn definitely then is affected because of that uh, predation of the crayfish on these eggs and juveniles. Then the other one is also on the on the catch of the fishermen. You find that obviously within the catch, the crayfish is there. It obviously then starts to feed on the catch. And you find that then on the value, it reduces the value of, this, of the fish. When taken to market, it's a damaged catch. And therefore then it affects then the, the economic value that communities then can harness from the fish that are trying to catch. Then the other one is also the time lost. You're trying to sort out the, because it's got claws and then it's, it sort of closes itself in the fish net. So then the time it takes then to sort of take it out, then you lose a lot of time. You find that where communities were spending an hour to get their fish that take close to maybe two hours. And of course, these are values that were yet to really determine. But from the surveys we've been doing, communities are actually then complaining about that. In terms of the Mosa Pigra, I think one of the lessons that we learned, and we're doing this with an organization called Bedwatch and the International Crane Foundation, and what we've found out that it's growing at a rapid rate because of one, it germinates, it's the, the amount of seeds that it produces are a lot. And also the germination rates, it's got very high germination rates, but then also the rate at which it grows is also quite high. So you find that once it colonizes an area, it then introduces and outcompetes the native vegetation. So you find that, for example, certain areas then can just be colonized and you find that the available area where communities then can access and feed their livestock are not available for them. And then it starts then to slowly change this ecosystem functioning of the system. But Sophie, this is something that you can only know because these are slow moving variables. Huh? the crayfish and uh, as well as the mimosa pigra and it's important for us then to understand before it's too late before we have these places for example like the kafir which in five years time the cost of managing it now is lower than the cost of addressing the problem yeah and uh, so we're trying to take advantage of this unique window that we have in trying to clear the mimosa pigra such that if in five years time we find that actually the cost of actually clearing can actually even be maybe triple that of, uh, of, of addressing the problem. So it's timely and requires knowledge but also requires the communities as well. This is very interesting because you find that we need development yeah. but now development is opening up all these areas and yeah. opening up exotic species or even foreign species that do not belong to this yeah. ecosystem. But the question is, like, before we talk about the balance, let's talk about the the value, like, for example, in terms of this bridge, mm -hmm. you know, like the road itself here. And let's also combine the other infrastructure, big infrastructure, for example, the Kazungura uh, mm -hmm. bridge that has actually happened in the upper area and stuff. Let's talk about those infrastructure. And in terms of especially opening up this western region mm. and the neighbors yeah obviously as a country i think development is important and the vision of of the country is that by 2030 we're a middle-income country and i think these are things that everyone really aspires to but i think uh, one of the things that i think is also important is also trying to understand how these large-scale development projects really affect certain fundamental ecosystem processes and trying to understand okay uh, how are the two linked and what's the cost benefit of the two? I think in most cases, especially politicians, I think are motivated and obviously because of several reasons, are motivated by short-term 
economic uh, benefit without, I think, understanding the long-term impact on these ecosystems. And like I said, ecosystem processes, whether it be, for example, the mimosa pigra or the crayfish or alteration in the ideological are slow-moving variables such that once they change fundamentally, it's a huge cost to actually then sort of retain and restore them. And I think the, the challenge right now is understanding the short-term economic benefit versus the long-term ecological cost that ultimately will also then affect those short-term uh, benefits that you're going to get. As I said, for example, uh, if you talk about the economic value of fisheries and if you alter that, you're definitely then going to have situations where the communities uh, don't have food because obviously the fish has gone down. But meanwhile, you did a short-term uh, development project. So I think maybe the challenge right now, especially for, uh, I think for countries like Zambia, but even for regions like Western Province or Barossaland, is really trying to understand that we need to develop, but just understand the cost benefit. And I think Western Province, as there's this new need to open up, to uh, develop, there's this first huh, among local communities for employment, for development. And I think, for example, the, the Mongutapo Bridge huh, opens up new areas of markets, uh, has opened up new areas where people previously did not have access to market. And, but then that means that this new access to market and accessibility then and brings in new pressures, whether it be poaching or overfishing, you know, all these things that come up. Something that maybe has also come up in, uh, in our work, uh, especially when we talk about the Barotse floodplain being described as a World Heritage Cultural Landscape, has been the issue of mining versus inscription. And I think that example really brings the, the, that sort of dilemma, uh, I think, very, very clearly. The inscription is whereby, as, as WWF and National Heritage Conservation Commission, we're trying to recognize at an international level that the Bowser Flatpain has got key values, whether it be, for example, the rich heritage and culture of the Lozi people, or whether it be, for example, the network of canals, or the traditional royal mounds where each Litunga is buried and becomes sort of a place whereby the past Litungas are interfacing, obviously, with the, with the, with the people around the community. And that inscription for us offers an opportunity for increase in ecotourism, which I think people can come in, see the huge biodiversity, the rich heritage, and can also be a place whereby entrepreneurship increases. And we think that that potential is there. But of course, within a World Heritage Cultural Landscape, mining cannot be done. And therefore, during our consultations, both with local communities, with the, with the traditional leaders, but also with governments, that conversation has really come in to say, if we go through inscription, there will be no mining. Uh, and I think the two sort of are head to head. Our argument is that there are places we're not against mining, but just need to do mining in the right places. Obviously, in such an ecologically sensitive area like the Barossa Flatspin, but also where our heritage is, maybe there are certain places where we should say mining shouldn't be done. Let's do mining in other areas. So we need to reach a point whereby large-scale developmental projects can be done, but also recognizing that we need to preserve these ecologically sensitive areas, but also culturally sensitive areas in a sustainable way. You're taking me to the whole issue of now how the land used within this particular area mm -hmm. has changed. Initially, the Lozi people, they would just migrate from the plains yeah. to, you know, to the higher ground. But as population grow, how is the land changing? 
mm. land use basically yeah that's a very good point um uh, in terms of i think some of the main land use activities on the barossa flat plain obviously has been agriculture is one of them where i think where communities do obviously cultivate their crops in relation or in tandem to these uh, rainfall but also flooding patterns huh? then you've also got for example uh, issues to do with uh, forested areas where for example this is where we do our upland vegetation we also then utilizing the uh, the timber logging and so forth so one of the key drivers of land use change on the Barossa flat plain one of them I, is obviously agriculture conversion and obviously there's this new interest as i said for rice cultivation for obviously maize cultivation so you find that these new areas where the flat plain used to reach its full extent you find that obviously there's this new encroachment if i can use that word in terms of agriculture uh, the other one obviously has been changes in i think what i can call climate variability the flood plain is is influenced both by timing and extent of the rainfall and the flooding and because of this sort of extremes of where for example in one season we've got for example too much rainfall in the other season for example we've got maybe say uh, less water you find that the ecosystem uh, processes of the flat plain tends to be altered you find that in one season one area is not fully inundated and therefore therefore it's it sort of then shrinks in terms of the actual inundated area you find that in another season then too much water but maybe in a shorter period of time then sort of fundamentally changes so climate variability is something that through our research with unza has revealed that it's one of the key drivers of land use change of course the other one has been obviously key policies in terms of how we manage our wetland system and i think this also points down to the capacity of our institutional framework and policies to manage wetland system there is still a gap unfortunately in the management of wetlands largely because of two things one wetlands fall under um, customary land and therefore because of that the institutional structure to govern wetland areas is often not very clear areas like for example a national park this is state land you find that for example departments like the department of the national park then have a very clear mandate over that area but for wetlands they fall really under customary land so you find that the jurisdiction of the institutions actually to to manage these wetlands the presence at the ground is often not there so you find that also there's also fragmentation in terms of how the wetlands need to be managed wetlands are multiple resource systems huh? whether it be fisheries whether it be birds whether it be for example agriculture and because of this segmentation of these uh, laws govern these multiple resource use systems it's not very holistic and you find that there is really no for example clear role of institutions in how wetlands used to be managed on the ground for example the barotse flat planner is recognized as a ramsar site but the institutions uh, for example like the zambia environment management authority don't really have a lot of presence on the ground here because ramsar is supposed to be managed under zema but in terms of presence on the ground, it's often not there. So uh, policies and legislation also affect land use change. The other key drivers has been anthropogenic activities like unregulated forest fires, whether it be on the flat peninsula, but also on the margins, also affect how wetlands function. Currently, fire management on the Barossa flat plain, we don't have a fire management plan. And even as a country, we don't have a fire management strategy. And I think for wetlands like the Barotse, you really need that holistic uh, fire management strategy because fires, they influence this ecological, hydrological, 
but also human interaction. Uh, fires then affect how much, for example, nutrients are released in the system that then determine how fish is going to spawn. They also then affect, for example, uh, the forest cover. And, but unfortunately, we don't. We, I think there are sort of missing gaps that we have there. Interesting. What needs to be done? <clears throat> there is this new push to strengthen the wetlands policy. I think that is uh, uh, that is coming up very clearly. And I think there's also this uh, new push. I think to have different departments speaking uh, with each other. For example, the Department of Fisheries speaking. For example, the Department of Forestry. And I think uh, for us as WWF, that's why we feel, for example, the recognition of the Barossa Floods Plain as a World Heritage Cultural Landscape provides this sort of framework yeah, for how all these, di these different sectors and governments can come together on one table to talk about issues of this holistic approach to management of wetlands. Importantly as well, Sophie, is that traditional authorities and local communities need to take more role in the management of wetlands. And I think we're privileged in the Western province to have the Barossa Royal Establishment, which I think has got high legitimacy. They have got a very uh, elaborate system of how communities at the village level, all the way up to Namuso, up to the Tunga, and the roles of how to manage these natural resources. What is missing is how we can help them strengthen their capacity in terms of actually managing all these resources together. Obviously, related to the issue of capacity, uh, Sophie, is also how we harness the economic utilization of resources. What I mean by that is the value chain of resources. You need to loop the management with the economics of the resource. For example, fisheries. We all know that, for example, fisheries produces a huge amount of revenue and government does collect some revenue, whether it be maybe along the fish control, the fish levy. How is that resources looped back into the management of natural resources? So you find that in all sectors, whether it be fisheries or forestry, that looping back is missing. Meaning that we're managing resources without actually the finances to actually open manage the natural resources because we're not understanding the economics and the management and putting them together. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that was Dr. Machaya Chomba, the WWF Zambia Upper Zambezi Program Manager. Now, do join me again two weeks' time, and we will be talking about culture and managing of our natural resources with an example of the Lozi people and how they manage this Barotse floodplain. Please do remember that you can access this episode and many other episodes that we've produced here at Africa Climate Conversations on every podcast channel that you access your other podcasts from. And you can also access it through our website, www.africaclimateconversations.com. I will see you in two weeks' time. So do stay safe. Kaheri, my name is Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Conversations. Thank you.